This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. More information is on our website. We're going to continue our series in the book of Titus, so turn with me to Titus uh, chapter 1. We did a series... Uh, was it this summer on Ecclesiastes called What's the Point? Then went to a series on mission. We called that Prepare for the Square. And this series on Titus we're calling The Book of Titus. So I'm not sure what happened to our creativity, um, but this is a series entitled The Book of Titus. And that's what we're going to study. So we're going to finish chapter 1 today, starting in verse 9, completing through verse 16. There's a lot here. There's a lot for us. And so um, our prayer is that we just get through it. But I do want to take a minute to recap where we're at. So Titus chapter 1. Uh, Titus is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was radically converted uh, in the book of Acts. We read about that in the book of Acts, which for those... Uh, not so familiar with the New Testament, is kind of a history book for us uh, about the New Testament church in the first century, kind of the development of the church. And this man named Saul was an was a, uh, enemy against the, new mes- the message of Jesus Christ as the Savior, and he persecuted Christians, and God radically saved him. And Paul uh, finished his life on mission, on, on a mission to spread the gospel Across the world. And he went to cities and countries. And as he went, he took men with him. And Titus is one of the fellow workers that he took with him. And he he calls him here in verse 4 his uh, true child. So Paul worked with Titus. And as you may know, Paul wrote several books in the New Testament, some of which he wrote to churches, like the churches in Galatia. We have the book of Galatians, the churches in Ephesus. Uh, We have Ephesians. But then he wrote several books to men. Two pastors, we call them the pastoral epistles, to kind of provide direction to pastors. And that's what we have here to Titus. Paul is giving specific directions to Titus for the benefit of the church. And so while this is written to Titus, the the influence or the application doesn't stop with Titus or with pastors. It applies to all of us. God had, through the Holy Spirit, through the writing of Paul, God intended for this book to be canonized in Scripture for all time for our benefit. So as we read this and as we talk about the qualifications of elders and as we can continue that idea, we need to remember that this has a place for us. We read last week, Pete taught us uh, in verse 5 through 8 that Paul left Titus, Paul worked with Titus there in Crete, and Paul left Titus there to to help appoint pastors, help appoint elders, to help in the formation of the church, of the local churches there in Crete. And what we see in the next three verses are kind of like the walls of the, of the pastor, the walls of the house being built up. Here are the qualification. Here is the godliness that's produced by grace that Paul is telling Titus to look for in the believer. And this is, this is how you're going to identify who God is leading to be elders. Uh, I have three children. Caroline's eight, Lincoln's three, and Roman is almost two. And uh, he's kind of our true gift of terror. Um, 
all three of our all three of our children uh, enjoyed playing with blocks. Uh, Caroline, when she was younger, even now she'll she'll get on the floor and we'll build things, whether it's blocks, uh, duplos, or Legos. And Roman, in particular, just recently in the last couple months, he's 21 months, 22 months. In the last couple of months, he's really gotten into building towers. So he'll take blocks and he'll put them on top of it. And immediately, as he's got six, seven done, he just hits it and knocks it off. Almost like the fun, there's more fun in knocking down his tower than it is building it. And I think that's the case because he knocks down my tower and Lincoln's tower and Caroline's tower. And the reason why those towers or those houses that we build are so easily knocked down is because there is no foundation. On a coffee table, there is no way, and and if you know how, with Legos... Um, let us know, but there's no way to build a foundation. And so it's easy for a two-year-old to just knock down this, these walls, this tower. And so it would be for the life of a believer that as we seek to grow in godliness, grow in grace as a result of the regenerated work of God in our hearts, that, that as we add these qualifications or these characteristics that without the proper foundation, these would just be easily knocked over. So it's, it's very possible for an unbeliever to build walls of moralism, to have a well-behaved family, to have a faithful marriage, but yet not honor God because there's no foundation. And so God is faithful. Paul helps us by giving us verse 9 in chapter 1 where he sets the foundation. And what we get to look at is we get to look at the foundation that God has intended for us on which, verses 6 through 8, build the house. On which we build the house. So I'm going to read verse 9, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Paul writes, He, referring to the man that Titus is supposed to look for, the men Titus is supposed to look for, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's an expression and it's a demonstration of your love for us. Today, I believe you intend to remind us of your love for us, of your provision for us, namely in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so help us to have ears to hear what you have for us, hearts to change. Lord, this word is for all of us this morning. I'm well aware of, of my need for it. I'm well aware of my need for your help even now. May this message be an expression of love for for this church, for our church, and may you work through it. For we ask this in Christ's precious name, for his glory. Amen. Paul starts off and he lays the foundation that the man of God, the mature believer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, to hold firm to the gospel. Here's what Greg Gilbert in his book on the gospel Uh, asks, he asks this question, how long has it been since you looked up from the earthly details of life and came face to face with the grand canyon of what God has done for us in the gospel? Then he describes it. His unfathomable, unfathomable grace in forgiving people who have rebelled against him. 
his breathtaking plan to send his son to suffer and die in their place, to establish the throne of the resurrected Jesus over a kingdom of perfect righteousness, and to bring those who are saved and redeemed by his blood into a new heavens and a new earth where sin and evil will forever be conquered. This is the gospel. And I believe Paul would have for us this morning that the gospel is the foundation that God has provided to us. Therefore, we must cling to it. The gospel is the foundation. Therefore, we must cling to it. We need the gospel. The gospel, as Greg Gilbert described it, the gospel is it's described all throughout Scripture in the New Testament, is that, that Jesus Christ is the way for us to be reconciled with God. That's it. There is nothing we can add to be justified with God. It is only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul says, this foundation, the gospel, how do we respond to it? What do we need to do to it? And let's look in verse 9. He says he must hold firm to the faithful word. What is holding firm? What's the, what's the idea that Paul is getting at here? We see this same word used in the book of Matthew um, by a different writer. In Matthew 6, And Jesus is speaking uh, to his disciples in the famous Sermon on the Mount. And he's talking about the, the reality that we can't serve God and money. We can't serve God and things. And he, he makes this statement that we will either be devoted, same word as hold firm to, to the one and we will despise the other. So there's an element of devotion here, an element of loyalty to the gospel, but Paul is communicating something far greater. He is, he is communing, communicating a holding onto, a clinging to. Think this morning as you walked your young child or in the past as you attempted to walk your young child to the nursery or to the classroom. Or if you've served in that environment, as parents try to drop off their kids in nursery. You see young children who are happily running around in the foyer immediately want to be in the arms of their parents and they cling to them. They hold tight to them. They're, they find security outside of themselves. They find dependence outside of themselves and they're looking to find their safety and their security and their confidence in their parents because they don't want to go into the classroom. Uh, a couple, uh, about 10 days ago, we were in Orlando uh, for a conference, and Amber and I went, and we had the opportunity to stay an extra day uh, in Orlando with a couple friends. So there were six of us, all 30-something, all with children at home. And so what do you do when you're in Orlando without your kids for a free day? Disney World. Absolutely. Who would do anything else? Um, I'm not much of a Disney World person. I'm not sure what a Disney World person is. I've had several friends who've uh, celebrated or went there on their honeymoon. Uh, there's something about asphalt, heat, people, lines. That just That's not what I was thinking when we scheduled our honeymoon. But for a day in Orlando with five other people who wanted to go, I knew we would have fun. Even though that meant getting there when the gate opened, leaving when they closed so that you got your money's worth. 
Well, the, the first ride we went to there is called the Tower of Terror. Some have been there. I had never been on it, nor had Amber. And uh, Amber and I will be married 10 years this year. And one thing I have learned is not to be around Amber when she's startled. Um, so though I had never been on the ride, I was pretty confident this was a ride that I was going to let my friends be next to her on. And so stood next to her in line. But at the time that we got into that elevator or getting ready to get into that elevator, I moved to a separate line and she was there left to sit by other friends. Now this ride, if you've never been on it, you go into the elevator, they put the lap strap down and you sit in the chair and it takes you up and up. And then at some point just immediately drops you 13 stories. Then it brings you back up and it drops you 13 stories. So you get that startled thing that you were going for. And Amber got it. And the beauty of those rides is there's always a camera that takes a picture at that time when they expect you to be startled. And so the picture I had this week as I was studying um, this holding firm is Amber clinging onto the arms of her friends. Amber 30-something clinging onto the arms of her 30-something friends. That's where she found her safety, her confidence, her dependence. Somewhat. She was just startled. But that's the idea, the clinging onto, the holding firmly. And that is what that is the picture that Paul is calling us how we ought to hold the gospel. Firm. Don't let go of it. The gospel wasn't just for that moment of conversion and then let go of it. No. Hold firm that gospel. And Paul uses the word trustworthy word as taught. He doesn't just use the term for gospel, but he's referring to the gospel, the word, the message that he had been preaching. He referenced that in verse 3. He referenced it in verse 4. There is no doubt here that Paul's emphasis is to focus on, to cling to, to find your dependence in and your confidence in the message of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is what salvation is found in. That is where we get our justification. And so Paul, looking for men to lead the churches, were looking for men who had found Jesus and were holding firm to him. And it didn't stop holding, as I said before. It didn't stop at that moment of conversion. There's a continual holding that is in view here. So even as there there is this desire to grow in godliness... The same grace that was available for salvation, for justification, is the same grace that we've heard referenced the last couple of weeks that we must look to to grow in godliness. God has work for us to do after he saves us. And he provides us the grace to do it after he saves us. It's the same grace. Paul's not looking for a man who finds his confidence, his dependence, an active dependence in his own capabilities. As I read it and thought about it, I thought it would make sense if if Paul wanted him to gather his church, that he would want someone to have confidence in their personality to be able to gather. I mean, how do you have a church if you can't gather people? Well, what about the confidence in the ability to teach? Really, a confidence in that ability to articulate. But that's not it. It's not in the capacity to lead. It's only... Only in the word, the gospel. 
since the gospel is the foundation on which we're building, we're constantly building for the rest of our life. We're going to be building. We're going to be seeking to honor God by growing in godliness, seeking to have lives marked by faithfulness, lives marked by um, submission, lives marked by hospitality. We've got to hold firm to the grace of God found in the gospel. Again, don't want to assume that the gospel, a word we hear often, is understood. It's the true peace. It's the reconciliation God has provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Here's how one pastor described the message of the gospel. He said, In his law-fulfilling life and his curse-bearing death and death-defeating resurrection, Jesus has entirely accomplished for sinners what sinners could never in the least do for themselves. The banner under which the Christian lives reads, get this, it is finished. That is the banner under which we live. This is justification. This is what God has done for us. And this is what we should hold to. And again, our as we hold, we got to be careful that our confidence is not in how tight we grab hold of that gospel. Because then we're just finding another object or finding that in ourselves. But our confidence is in the grasp at the gospel and the tightness of the grasp that the gospel has on us. So Paul's making connections here. He's building the foundation of the gospel, building godliness, God-honoring life. But he also makes a connection to the ability to understand and to teach doctrine. And in verse 9, he's clear that the gospel is the foundation for healthy teaching. Without a proper understanding of the gospel, if you get the gospel wrong, you're going to get doctrine wrong. We can look at that in our marriage. We can look at that as we parent or our theology of work. If we don't have a proper understanding of who God is and what he did and who we are and how we need to respond, we're going to get everything else wrong. Again, we can, we can live lives that look well-organized, parent uh, relationships that are um, loving, children that are well-behaved, but it's not God-honoring. One of my professors called the gospel the interpretive key to Scripture. And he is absolutely right. All of Scripture is interpreted by the gospel of who God is and what he provided for us and our need to respond to him. And so Paul makes this connection, understanding the gospel, holding firm to the gospel, being dependent dependent upon it, and it's a dependence for salvation, it's a dependence for sanctification, it's it's an active, functional dependence. We never stop depending on the gospel. And with that, we have the ability, pastors have the ability to instruct in sound doctrine, to rebuke those who contradict it, and we all have the ability to do that. The grace of God. I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 11, he informs of some of the gifts that he's given to the church, one of which being the pastor's teachers. And the purpose of that, that he goes on for the next three or four verses, is to communicate to the church, that the pastor's role is to equip the saints, to help build the saints up, 
to produce mature believers so that they're unified, so they're not tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine, that they're one. Why? So the body builds itself up. So again, in God's love and God's kindness, he has developed a process. He's developed a way for us to grow and to help and to live in community with one another. And his grace through the gospel allows that to happen. So the gospel is the foundation. The gospel is the gospel is the gives us the ability for healthy doctrine. It gives us the ability to live godly lives, to to grow in godliness in those characteristics that we saw earlier. So that's where Paul concludes kind of the house of what a pastor looks like. The foundation of the gospel, the walls of characteristics and qualities of godliness. And then he goes in verses 10 through 16, and he gives us a little bit of insight into what's happening on that island of Crete. So the island of Crete. There were many devout Jews who lived on the island of Crete. We read in Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when there was preaching and many people were saved, there were Cretans there in Jerusalem, devout Jews there. So there are Jews in Crete, in this Greek island, who are advancing a false message. And Paul describes that for us, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 16 now. These are, these are packed, so, so stay with me. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans. Now, this is a a philosopher, a prophet, lived about 600 years before this was written. And listen to what he said. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Imagine someone saying that about, like, you, like your nation. I mean, the U.S. hasn't been around 600 years. But say in another 400 years, someone, I guess, early on wrote that and we find it. I mean, that's that's not really a good statement, one of your own. But Paul follows that up with what? A statement that says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we get the picture in Crete a little bit. We don't have an established churches. We don't have pastors. What we have is we have a group of men, we have a group of Jews who are spreading a false gospel. So how does Paul describe this message, this false message? Well, he first starts describing the message by describing them. He calls them insubordinate. Now, how were they insubordinate? What weren't they submitted to? They weren't submitted to the true gospel preached by the the apostles. They had their own gospel. And so we can't have this idea that these guys just had it wrong and had no understanding. No, Paul tells us they were willfully choosing to preach another gospel, rebelling against the true gospel. They were insubordinate. They were empty talkers. Their words he describes as worthless. They were meaningless. 
They were empty. They were deceivers. Their, their teaching was a message that confused, that led people astray, that wasn't helpful. And we'll get a little more insight into that. But he deceived people from the truth. So he describes their message by describing them, which doesn't look anything like what Paul set out for an elder to look like in the preceding verses. But he also describes them by naming them. He names them. He calls them the circumcision party. And so, as devout Jews, these Jews had been taught for centuries that the way to God was to have these practices. So there were ceremonial laws, there was circumcision, there were practices, there were food diets that they had to follow. And so these Jews in the first century, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who were at Pentecost, who heard the message of Jesus, believed the message of Jesus, but added to that these laws. And this wreaks havoc. It's a, that's a false message. Jesus plus anything is a false gospel. The church dealt with that earlier. Acts 15 gives us the uh, story of the pastors and, and the apostles coming together and debating this issue of do specifically, do non-Jews need to be circumcised to be a Christian? Titus followed Paul to in the book of Galatians to Galatia. He was working with them there and Paul refused to force Titus to be circumcised. So, so Titus is well aware of this. He's been around this for a while. This isn't a new false gospel that he's heard. But it's a dangerous one. Adding anything to Jesus, regardless of how spiritual of a practice it was, makes it a false gospel. And again, these guys were, these guys were attacking the, the, the essential jo- doctrine of justification. How, do I, how am I reconciled with God? And... Uh, so as Paul defi- defines them, as he, he describes their teaching, um, this, this under- as I said before, they didn't just miss it. They chose this as their gospel. And since the beginning of time, people have been trying to save themselves in ways that make sense to them, rather than listening and submitting to God. And that's no less true in our day. It's no less true in our day. The gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. It's under attack in our culture. It's Jesus plus prosperity. It's Jesus plus niceness. It's Jesus plus you name it. But the Bible is clear that salvation is in Jesus alone. The reality is the gospel is under attack in every household and every church. See, this continual idea of holding firm, even after justification has taken place, even as we have been declared righteous before God and we stand there, there is nothing that can be done that takes us away from that standing. We are children of God. We are safe, and we're holding on to that. But oftentimes, we damage the gospel functionally, actively, by adding practices to that and think that we're earning God's grace on a daily basis. So we take practices, good practices. Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, 
um, sets out ten or so biblical practices, biblical disciplines, where in 1 Timothy, Paul says, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. So, so again, we're not tearing down the walls. The walls are there, but, but the, godly, the grace that is available for the building of the walls is from God. It's not earned. See, we take these spiritual activities and we can turn the focus from them being a means of grace, helping us to experience what God has for us as we read his word, as we pray, as we go to church, and these things that are supposed to allow us to experience God's grace, and we, we make them like we're earning favor with God. Does something come to mind in your, in your heart? Things that... That at one point it was, hey, I'm, I want to do this. God, God wants me to grow in this area. God wants me to, to set up this discipline, this habit for the sake of, of growing in my godliness. But now I do it because I think if I don't, then God doesn't love me. Or if I don't, I lack confidence in my relationship with Christ. And this turns into a, not an issue of salvation, but turns into a, a, a daily issue of adding Jesus to the gospel. And what Paul points to next is that this is a devastating message. See, the message that these Jews were teaching, and they were teaching it to people who were already believers. They'd already trusted Jesus Christ, but they're coming and saying, hey, it's not enough. It was damaging. In verse verse 11, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families. A damaged gospel damages people. Their false message, motivated by greed, motivated by their own financial, likely their own financial gain as a result of the involvement in these ceremonial rituals, etc., was an upsetting message. It was upsetting whole families, households. False gospel is destructive. It's, destru- it's destructive for the witness of Jesus Christ to others. And it's destructive daily in our homes if we're functioning as if we can earn God's favor with those things that we do. The reality of this is sobering. I, I've seen some clips on YouTube, heard it in a sermon, heard this illustration in a sermon, read it in a book. You guys might have heard it. It's not mine, but it's good. The, the, the performer who gets on a stage and has these rods and these plates, and the picture of the performers attempting to add 8, 9, 10, 12 plates, spinning all at once. And he sets one up, he spins it, he goes to the second one, third, fourth, the first one starts wobbling, so he spins it again and he continues. And, and he's looked as as a great performer, as successful as he has all of these plates spinning. Sometimes in his act, it's hectic. Sometimes he has to run from the first one to the fifth one and so on, but other times it's just well organized. And the illustration that's used is the comparison that's used that these plates are these spiritual activities, these disciplines, these good things, these things that God intends for us as we work towards growth and godliness through his grace, these plates are put and we start spinning them. And we begin to lose our focus on the plate and on the 
goodness of the plate and the purpose of the plate, and our focus begins to look at the effort of keeping them all going, and then the performance of, it's all go- of them all going, and God's, God's favor on us for doing all of this. And functionally, that's adding something to the gospel. And, it, and as we display that in our life, we're communicating that message, a false message, to the lost. The goal is to not have any plates crash. And the, the, the idea is that once the plates crash, like the performance isn't over, and that's when destruction is there. But, but no, the, the scripture, I think, shows that the, the despair comes well before that. The despair happens at that moment when our focus changes from the goodness of that discipline, the goodness of that activity, the goodness of, of God's gift of his word and of prayer, and it turns to the effort, the spinning, the attempt to earn God's favor as opposed to the means of grace to grow in his likeness. It's damaging, it's devastating, and it upsets families. And I don't think that just because we affirm the truth of Jesus plus nothing for justification, that we can just assume that functionally in our daily life that we live that way. Sometimes it's Jesus plus our capabilities. Sometimes it's Jesus plus our, our previous growth. Sometimes it's Jesus plus a certain activity. But, it, but that's, an, that's a false message that has devastating effects. Paul continues and he describes um, in verse 16 um, how God views their works. See, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, if you remember, what were these things that the Jews were adding to the gospel? They were adding laws established by God. So these weren't, these weren't detestable things in and of themselves, but at the moment that they became part of the equation for salvation, God calls them detestable. They're unfit for any good work. They're, they're actually an, a sign of denying God, an attempt to, to earn his favor. I actually disgust him with my attempt. So Paul clearly, clearly shows that any activity performed with the desire or the expectation that God demands us to do it, for us to be accepted as his children, Paul calls it detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And Paul instructs them to silence them. He instructs them to rebuke them. He instructs them to shut them up, to quiet them. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say reason with them. Back in verse 9, he, he communicated, this is why you hold fast the gospel, so that with authority you can rebuke those who contradict it, those who are hurting the church. You can rebuke them. But, but what I find so loving of God, and this passage demonstrates God's love so much, he highlights the gospel, the, the greatest demonstration of his love is highlighted in this passage. The fact that he is spending time helping us 
identify what our lives should look like to glorify him is, is loving. The fact that he's setting up for us pastors to care for us is loving. But here, even with Jews, even with men who are teaching a false gospel, Paul writes in verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I would have thought, rebuke them so they're condemned, so everybody knows they're wrong, so that we're done with them, so that we have purity in the church. No, God's desire for them is restoration, brought back to truth. And that's God's desire for each one of us. See, we all come in here in a different place. We all are wrestling with different temptations. We all have different um, tendencies that that pull us from the gospel, some of us, it's before we've even trusted in Christ. We're holding on to something, to a lifestyle, to a, a Jesus plus something doctrine that, that uh, doesn't allow us to fully just trust in Jesus alone and repent of our sins. And God's heart and God's desire for you is for restoration, for reconciliation. And he has made a clear promise in Scripture. And that promise is that for anyone who calls on him, he will save. God desires restoration and reconciliation for you if, for you, if you have never trusted in him. But God also desires re- restoration for those who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus and have lived under that banner, but are struggling on a daily basis with resting in that work when it comes to the standing before God. See, the resting that we can do is in our relationship with God. The New Testament doesn't teach us that we get saved and we rest for the rest of our life. No, it calls us to labor and to work with God's grace, but... The gospel is clear that once we have responded in faith through repentance, that we rest in what God has done for us. We cannot earn his love. We cannot earn his favor regardless of what we do. So today we may need to repent and believe for the first time. We may need to repent in our attempt to, to spin our spiritual activities, our disciplines, and, and to be more focused on them not falling than, than enjoying the experience of grace that God has for us in those. I think if we've trusted in Jesus' work on our behalf, for those of us who know G- Jesus in that way, I think God would have us spend some time, spend some time gazing at his demonstration of his love. To, ga- to, to rejoice in the good news. There is no better news. That's the joy of coming and worshiping together and, and singing songs that declare the work of Jesus. God's demonstration of his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We can rest in that. We rejoice in that. We cling to that. That's our exhortation here. Cling to that. Hold on to it. Don't let go. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, encourages us to preach the gospel daily to ourselves. To remind ourselves that God is the source of grace, that he has provided to us Jesus Christ. 
And that is that the same grace that is available to us as we seek to grow in godliness. The gospel is not a message of condemnation. It's a message of hope. It's a message of grace. It's a message of grace that's available to us today, even though we failed this morning, even though we depended upon ourselves this morning, thinking that we can earn God's favor, or even as we've lived X number of years rebelling against God and refusing to put our faith and trust in him, the message of the gospel is a message of grace and a message of hope for all of us. The gospel is the foundation. It's what everything's built on. We can't get it wrong. And we can't let go of it. Hold firm to the true gospel. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.